It's Brian again, your lunatic friend. And I'm in a place in my story where it's fuzzier than ever. Touring strong medicine, I didn't have time to look around. And I hardly noticed that I didn't have a record company right then. It was 1989, and I was busy. So I can't remember when this exactly happened, but there was one point where I was booking so many concerts through Street Level Artist Agency that we accidentally booked two concerts on the same day in two different countries. It was my regular routine to fly in on the day of a concert, play the concert, and leave the crowd of dawn the next morning. So when I learned that I was double booked, I wasn't even thinking about a cancellation. I was supposed to be in Chilliwack, British Columbia at the same time that I was supposed to be in Seattle. And yes, Chilliwack is a town in British Columbia, Canada. That's what I love about Canada. The names of the cities. We played in Moose Jaw once and Alaska had a few names like that too. I remember a town I played in called Chicken. They named it Chicken, Alaska because uh, the town wanted to call it Peregrine, but nobody could spell it. Anyway, back in Chilliwack, they were doing a whole week weekend youth convention. Now, Chilliwack is just two and a half hours from Seattle where I was scheduled to play at a multi-artist concert at Seattle Pacific University, and I didn't want to disappoint anybody, so we figured we'd just rent a private plane, and we talked the Chilliwack promoter into letting me play in the afternoon, and then I would fly to Seattle in time to make that concert as well. Now, let me just say that this was as big time as I ever felt, and it was created in a moment of panic. But there is nothing like doing a concert and pulling an Elvis has left the building, jump into your awaiting limo, and drive to the airport to an awaiting private plane where the pilot is standing there waiting for you to get on board. To this day, it was the fastest I've ever gone through an airport. An hour and a half from boarding, I was landing in Seattle, where we had arranged to trade slots with another band. They went on earlier so I could be there. Now, as long as I'm talking about playing in Seattle, I don't think it was the same event, but it was another multi-artist concert, and I was merely one of the opening acts. But I remember that the headliner was Amy Grant, who I I never saw or talked to, but I have to thank her because Word Records was there, and that's where they first heard me and saw the response, and it made them interested in signing me to a contract. I was backstage talking to a Word rep when Amy took the stage with just a guitar playing to 3,000 people. The only other thing that I recall was standing alone out back of the convention center. There was a black man standing by himself, looked like he had a million dollar suit on, so naturally I assumed he was an evangelist. So I asked him if he was on this gig, and he said he was just here to see somebody, and I asked him, are you an evangelist? And he said, no, I'm a rapper. And before I even asked him his name, I said, wow, I didn't know he was paying that well. Especially because at the time, I'd never heard of him. Said his name was MC Hammer. And I would remember him a few years later when the song came on. Can't touch this. And no, I never told him about my rap song. And a month later, I was in Nashville talking to Word Records about signing with Murr, their contemporary music label. They agreed to re-release Strong Medicine on their label, and I would sign a three-record deal with two options. I thought Myrrh was a weird name, but it was probably better than Frankincense for a record label. But the best thing about it was that they had an office in Toluca Lake, California, so I wouldn't be flying back to Nashville all the time to record. Looking back now, it's hard to imagine that at the same time that I was signing a contract with a company that would put me in a whole different category and a new level in Christian music, I was having a lot of mixed feelings about who I was. Even since doing Whistling in the Dark, I hadn't resolved all the conflicts in my own life, I could still see the incongruity between me and the guy on the poster. Of course, it's easier to be the guy on the poster because he never says anything. And you can look shiny and let people assume. But I was about to get a major marketing budget and a whole staff of people who were about to speak on my behalf. 
My interviews would be edited and my quotes would be refined. But I wouldn't notice that for a long time because I had an album to do. And I was hanging out with the A&R guy in Toluca Lake, Tom Willett. His hair was shoulder length and he was something of a theologian. Murr already had a stable of edgy artists like Julie Miller, Tony O'Kay, a metal band called Guardian, and this one real cute girl, her name was Leslie Phillips. And I remember hearing her first record when I was still recording with Sweet Comfort Band. Engineer Jack Puig, that we were using, played a couple of songs from it one day, and her track sounded awesome. Enough so to remember the producer's name, Dan Postema. And when Tom Willett asked if I had a producer in mind, his was the first name to come up. And it turns out that Dan was the head of A&R at Murr Records. The record company wrote me a check for $80,000, and here's where some artists will take an advance, as they call it, which is just money that they take for themselves to spend somewhere else. Nope, Dan and I were going to spend this money on music. And what's more, I gave Dan a list of all the musicians that I liked the most. Dan would add his list and start calling around. He'd already worked with a lot of these guys. And man, he got the bucket list of all time for the best musicians on the West Coast. It was like an all-star team. It's amazing what you can do with a real budget. And that would include Toto's drummer, Jeff Picaro, and on bass, Nathan East, who was playing with Eric Clapton at the time. We had a few guitar players, but Tim Pierce was the best. He was a Hollywood studio player. Among the keyboard players, we had Michael O'Mardian, who had produced Christopher Cross. You might still remember those keyboard licks. Ride like the wind. That was a Martian. And we also had Peter Wolf on Hammond B3. He was working with the band Chicago. And Alan Pasqua, who was playing with a group called Giant, also toured with Santana and Bob Dylan, Eddie Money and Donna Summer. His list goes on and on. And we also got Jerry Hay and Larry Williams from the original Sea Wind Band. They were in the horn section. We used singers from the L.A. Mass Choir. And we even brought in Sandra Crouch on tambourine. We would do most of the recording at Bill Schnee's studio in Hollywood. I remember early on, before I'd heard from Dan, asking Bill Schnee if he would produce my record. He didn't get back to me for a week, but then he called me back and said he was going to produce Huey Lewis and the News. But we would still record in Bill Schnee's studio. I remember the first day that Jeff Picaro came into the studio. He brought the new singer for Toto, a new kid out of South Africa. Jeff had told him that he was playing on a gospel project. Said the guy's name's Brian Duncan. And I'm not sure, but I think it was Simon Phillips who took Bobby Kimball's place, singing lead vocals for Toto. And to my surprise, he knew who I was. And he came to the studio that first day just to say hi. But Jeff had no idea how giddy Dan and I were to have him in the room. I remember playing down that first track with him. We're sitting in the control room listening to Jeff Picaro play drums on one of my tracks. And Dan Postman turns to me and he says, how do we know when he's playing his best? We kept his first pass on that track, but we made him play it twice just so it looked like we knew what we were doing. One day during the breaks, I had my two sons at the studio. They were less than six years old. And Jeff would draw pictures for them. Turns out he was also a pretty good artist. Drew a couple of ninja turtles from my boys. Man, I wish I knew where those pictures were now. And right now, I kind of wish I knew where my memory was. Because at the time, my life was a blur. So many amazing experiences. The Anonymous Confessions of a Lunatic Friend would be my favorite record, in the way of musicians at least. This would be the first record that I never played a single part on. Because I didn't need to. I had better musicians in the wings. And I remember thinking, I'm just the hood ornament on a Pontiac. And if you don't remember those, that's where they used to put a chrome Indian head on the hood of a car. It did nothing, but it looked nice. But it's interesting to me now that you can have everything going for you on the outside and still have inner turmoil on the inside. And in the next episode, I'll be talking about the writing of the songs. And hey, thanks for listening to Jesus and Music in the Olden Days. At least from my perspective, sign the comments and be sure to listen to the two-minute Nutshell Sermons.